Hello everyone and welcome to the October 7th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folsner, attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. Another opioid maker settles the case on the eve of trial. Johnson & Johnson, the most litigious of them all, will pay $20.4 million to settle claims by two Ohio counties. This will allow the U.S. healthcare giant to avoid an upcoming federal trial seeking to hold them partly responsible for the nation's opioid epidemic. J&J became the fourth drug maker to settle, in this case, ahead of the trial against multiple manufacturers and distributors in Cleveland that is set for later this month. The case is considered a bellwether for more than 2,600 lawsuits by states and local governments that are pending nationally. J&J, which formerly marketed the painkillers Duragesic and Nucinta, said the settlement includes no admission of liability. The company will pay $10 million to Cuyahoga and Summit counties, reimburse $5 million of their legal and other expenses, and provide $5.4 million to nonprofit organizations that run opioid-related programs in the counties. Mallinckrodt finalized a $24 million settlement with the same two counties a few days ago. Endo International and Allergen also settled with the two counties last August to avoid going to trial. The remaining defendants in the October 21 trial include McKesson Corporation, Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Walgreens Boots Alliance, and Henry Schein Incorporated. Oxycontin maker Purdue Pharma succumbed to pressure from the lawsuits and filed for bankruptcy protection in September. Earlier in the year, an Oklahoma judge ordered Johnson & Johnson to pay $572.1 million in the first trial in these cases to the state for its part in fueling an opioid epidemic. Purdue Pharma and Teva had settled claims by Oklahoma's Attorney General for $270 million and $85 million respectively. The Court of Appeal decided that filing a workers' compensation claim is not necessarily a FEHA-protected activity that could be the basis of civil liability. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Riley versus the County of El Dorado. Nicole Riley worked in the El Dorado County Psychiatric Health Facility where she expressed concerns about patient safety. These concerns related to changes to work schedules <clears throat> that resulted in fewer staff at certain times and construction modifications to the layout of the facility that eliminated a hallway providing visual access to the community room before entering it. Afterwards, she was injured by a patient and filed a workers' compensation claim. Then she took a higher-paying job with the Office of the Public Guardian because she felt unsafe at the psychiatric health facility. Less than two months into the one-year probationary period for the new job, she was terminated for failure to complete probation satisfactorily. Riley then sued the county for a wrongful termination 
on a number of theories, including retaliation under the Fair Employment and Housing Act. She alleged the proffered reason for her dismissal was pretextual. She claimed the real reason was to retaliate against her for her complaints about safety concerns and was retaliation for filing her workers' compensation claim. But the trial court granted the county's motion for summary judgment and dismissed Riley's case. On appeal, she contends the trial court was wrong in finding her claims were not governed by FIHA. She asserts that her advocating for mentally disabled patients and her filing of a workers' comp claim were protected activities. Nonetheless, the Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal. It said that in order to establish a prima facie case of retaliation under the FIHA, a plaintiff must show that he or she engaged in a protected activity, that the employer subjected the employee to an adverse employment action, and that a causal link existed between the protected activity and the employer's action. Once an employee establishes this prima facie case, the employer is required to offer a legitimate, non-retaliatory reason for the adverse employment action. If the employer produces a legitimate reason for the adverse employment action, the presumption of retaliation drops out of the picture, and the burden of proof shifts back to the employee to prove intentional retaliation. In finding Riley's complaints regarding safety were not a protected activity, the trial court relied in part on cases that hold complaints about workplace safety are not a protected activity that will support a FIHA retaliation claim. With respect to the workers' comp claim, the determination as to what constitutes a protected activity is inherently factually driven. Here, her filing of the workers' compensation claim was completely unrelated to any discriminatory employment practice. Riley did not file for stress injuries caused by discriminatory harassment. Rather, she sought and received treatment in the form of physical therapy, chiropractic, and acupuncture services for her physical injuries of bumps, bruises, and neck and shoulder injuries caused by an assault in the workplace. In this circumstance, the filing of a workers' compensation claim was not a protected activity. And a WCAB panel ruled that the requirements for a subsequent Injury Benefits Trust Fund benefit are unchanged after the implementation of SB 899 on apportionment. Here's what happened in the panel decision of Enrique versus the County of Santa Barbara. Victoria Enrique had an injury to her psyche as a result of cumulative trauma ending in 2004 while employed by the County of Santa Barbara. In 2000, uh, 2014, opinion and decision after reconsideration found permanent disability of 60% based on an AME who was reporting that applicant was unable to compete on the open labor market. But the AME apportioned 40% of applicants' permanent disability to other factors, reducing her disability award to 60%. 
After the award of 60% PD, Enrique sought subsequent injury benefit trust fund benefits. After submission of the subsequent injuries case in 2016, the work comp judge issued an order vacating submission of the case and ordering further discovery. The work comp judge directed the parties to elicit an opinion from the AME whether applicant had a pre-existing labor-disabling permanent disability prior to the industrial injury. Despite the fact that the work comp judge found that further development of the record was necessary, no further evidence was procured or admitted into the record by either party. So ultimately, the work comp judge just went ahead and rendered a decision awarding subsequent injury benefits on an evidentiary record he had previously found to be inadequate. The subsequent injuries benefit trust fund petitioned for reconsideration and it was granted and the findings of fact and order was rescinded in the panel decision. SB 899 went into effect in 2004 and made far-reaching changes, and the WCAB commented that among these changes, former Labor Code sections 4663 and 4750 were repealed. A new Labor Code section 4663 was enacted to now provide that apportionment of permanent disability shall be based on causation. Although SB 899 repealed the old apportionment statutes, Labor Code Section 4751 governing subsequent injury benefits liability remained unaltered. Thus, even after SB 899, in order to qualify for subsequent injuries benefits, the employee must show that his or her disability was labor disabling prior to the subsequent industrial injury even if an applicant's non-industrial pathology causes a portionable permanent disability. The subsequent injury benefits are not necessarily payable unless the applicant demonstrates that the pathology was causing permanent disability prior to the subsequent industrial injury. The requirement for the existence of a prior Labor Disabling Permanent Disability under Section 4751 is the same requirement that existed prior to amendments brought out by SB 899. So the WCAB concluded that the finding that applicant had 40% disability apportionable to other factors pursuant to current Labor Code Section 463, 4663 is in no way tantamount to a finding that the applicant had 40% or any labor-disabling permanent disability at the time of her psychiatric industrial injury. The WCAB said that the work comp judge must make a finding that, at the time of the industrial injury, applicant had a labor-disabling permanent disability. The case was remanded to determine whether or not or not that existed. And now our crime report, a law enforcement action involving fraudulent genetic cancer testing has resulted in charges in five federal districts against 35 defendants associated with dozens of telemedicine companies. 
and Cancer Genetic Testing Laboratories, known by the acronym CGX, for their alleged participation in one of the largest healthcare fraud schemes ever charged. Prosecutors say these defendants fraudulently billed Medicare more than $2.1 billion for these CGX tests. Among those charged are 10 medical professionals, including nine doctors, with no single organization behind the frauds. And the joint enforcement operation known as Double Helix targeted defendants in Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas. The fraud begins when a telemarketing or in-person recruiter convinces a Medicare enrollee to take a genetic test. The target is assured that the full cost is covered by the program if the patient provides their Medicare information. Bills to Medicare connected with the scam mostly range from seven dollars to $12,000 per person. The scheme involved the payment of illegal kickbacks and bribes by CGX Laboratories in exchange for the referral of those recruited by the telemedicine companies. However, the expensive cancer genetic tests were allegedly medically unnecessary. Often the test results were not provided to the beneficiaries or were worthless to their actual doctors. The telemarketing network that lured hundreds of thousands of elderly and disabled patients into the scheme which affected victims nationwide. Doctors were paid to prescribe CGX testing either without any patient interaction or with only a brief telephonic conversation with patients they had never met or seen. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General has previously issued a fraud alert for consumers in an effort to educate the public about such schemes. This operation included the participation of various federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies. A 36-year-old doctor was sentenced to 40 years in prison after he took in roughly $700,000 by illegally prescribing opioids to patients far beyond his medical practice in the small town, small town of Martinsville, Virginia. Dr. Joel Smithers was convicted in May of more than 800 counts of illegally prescribing drugs, including the oxycodone and oxymorphone that caused the death of a West Virginia woman. Patients from five states drove hundreds of miles to see this doctor, spending up to 16 hours on the road to get prescriptions for the powerful painkillers. Authorities say that instead of running a legitimate medical practice, Dr. Smithers headed an interstate drug distribution ring in West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, Tennessee, and Virginia. And at trial, they described an office that lacked basic medical supplies, a receptionist who lived out of a back room during the work week, and patients who slept outside and urinated in the parking lot. At trial, one woman who described herself as an addict compared Smithers' practice to pill mills she frequented in Florida. A receptionist testified that patients would wait up to 12 hours to see Dr. Smithers, who sometimes kept his office open past midnight. Smithers did not accept insurance and took in close to $700,000 in cash and credit card payments over two years.
At his trial, Dr. Smithers portrayed himself as a caring doctor who was deceived by some patients. He said he learned several lessons the hard way about trusting people that he should not have trusted. Barnesville, Virginia was once a thriving furniture and textile manufacturing center. It was a city of about 14,000 people near Virginia's southern border. But when factories began closing down in the 1990s, thousands of jobs were lost. Between 2006 and 2012, the city had the nation's third highest number of opioid pills received per capita. And in regulatory news, Governor Gavin Newsom signed Senate Bill 542, a new law that creates a rebuttable presumption that a first responder's PTSD struggles are occupational injuries. The new law would apply to injuries occurring after January 1, 2020. Rebuttable presumptions for first responder work-related injuries already included physical ailments such as heart disease, cancer, and hernias. But before Governor Newsom signed SB 542, California's law limited psychiatric injury compensation to those that could prove the injury was at least 50% related to their job. Now, this new presumption also includes post-traumatic stress that develops or manifests itself during a period in which the injured person is in the service of the department or unit. And the law would prohibit compensation for a claim of injury unless the first responder has performed services for at least six months unless the injury was caused by a sudden and extraordinary employment condition. The six months of employment need not be continuous. The injury in these cases shall be presumed to arise out of and in the course of the employment. This presumption is disputable and may be controverted by other evidence. This presumption shall be extended to a member following termination of service for a period of three calendar months for each full year of service, but not exceeding 60 months in any circumstance, and it commences with the last day actually worked in the specified capacity. Governor Newsom signed the law alongside two other bills that will provide mental health support to firefighters and peace officers. The second new law establishes standards for peer support programs, and the third signing prohibits outsourcing of local emergency dispatch services to for-profit agencies. And in medical news, according to a long-term study by researchers in Hawaii, on-the-job exposure to high levels of pesticides might raise the risk of developing heart disease or having a stroke. The study was published in the Journal of the American Heart Association. Researchers say farm and agricultural workers need to wear personal protective equipment, and even after they retire, they should continue to have their health monitored for cardiovascular complications. Many workers may not think that exposure during their younger or middle years is crucial, but it actually is. Pesticides have a long half-life and exist in the body for a long time, so side effects may appear even 10 to 20 years later. The researchers 
focused on more than 7,000 men who had provided information on their work history and had no heart disease at the beginning of the study period. To gauge pesticide exposures, the research team used the Occupational Safety Health Administration Exposure Scale. The scale estimates typical pesticide amounts encountered during an 8-hour workday and 40-hour work week. Overall, just 451 men had high exposure to pesticides, and 410 men had low to moderate exposure, while the rest had none. The team then looked at medical records to assess who developed cardiovascular disease, which they defined as coronary heart disease or a cerebrovascular incident such as a stroke. Researchers found that the men with high pesticide exposure were 42% more likely than those with none to develop cardiovascular disease during the first 10 years of follow-up. And high exposure during middle age led to cardiovascular disease sooner. Pesticides can also affect cholesterol and the concentration of heavy metals in the body. Heart disease was not associated with low or moderate levels of exposure to pesticides, and the link to high exposure was not seen in the longer term up to 34 years. Research studies are still trying to unpack how pesticides contribute to heart disease and death. Possibilities include inflammation or oxidative stress, as well as how often or how much exposure is most harmful. A CVS health plan that uses an outside drug pricing group to help it decide whether to cover certain new medicines has gained little traction with customers and has drawn fierce criticism from patient advocacy groups. The company is therefore holding back on marketing the pharmacy benefit plan while it talks to these groups. The plan was launched a year ago and is based on analyses by the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, known as ICER. ICER is a Boston-based group that assesses effectiveness of drugs to determine appropriate prices. Using ICER's cost-effectiveness assessment, CVS decides whether to include second or third medicines entering the market, if there are already similar ones in the plan. More than 50 groups, including drug makers, Pharma, the industry's main lobby group, and other advocacy groups have provided comment during a public input period. Opposition to the CVS plan is part of much broader concerns cited by drug companies and advocacy groups. Some say that ICER's analysis based on additional years of quality of life gained from a given treatment is arbitrary and disregards the cost of drug development and patient needs. Many asked ICER to eliminate price recommendations from its efficacy analyses. But ICER has defended its methods, which are based on a widely used cost-effectiveness analysis. The soft rollout of the CVS ICER-related product comes as employer health plan sponsors, its biggest clients, are showing increased concern over their costs for new high-priced drugs and some employer health plans are considering refusing to pay for them at all. 
One example of these high-priced drugs given is the Novartis AG who launched Zolgensma earlier this year. This is a gene therapy costing more than $2 million for a rare but deadly disease called spinal muscular atrophy. If corporate customers follow through on their threat, CVS said it could change its tactics with the plan. The new CVS program cited as an example of ICER's growing influence on U.S. drug pricing would not apply to such a breakthrough treatment. It is a tiny plan by CVS standards as this company manages pharmaceutical benefits for more than 102 million people and also owns Aetna Insurance and a national pharmacy chain. Large healthcare consultant and brokerage Mercer said it has begun to field similar concerns. A new California Workers' Compensation Institute research shows that the number of California workers' compensation inpatient hospital stays fell nearly 31% from 2010 through 2018. This was fueled in large part by a steady decline in spinal fusions. The study used hospital discharge data from nearly 32.3 million inpatient stays compiled by the State Office of Statewide Health Planning and Development. Workers' compensation was the smallest of the four medical delivery systems reviewed, accounting for just 0.4% of all inpatient stays in 2018, which is down 0.6% in 2010. At the same time, a number of factors spurred a decline in workers' comp inpatient stays from 2010 to 2018, including the increased use of ambulatory surgical centers, the adoption of utilization review and independent medical review programs requiring that treatment meet evidence-based medical standards, technological and procedural advances that allow more services to be provided in outpatient settings, and a 45.9% reduction in the number of spinal fusions since 2010. But spinal fusions are still the top inpatient service rendered in workers' comp, representing more than one in six injured hospitalizations last year. CWCI has released its study as a research update report. It is called the California Workers' Compensation Inpatient Hospital Trends, 2010 through 2018. The cost of ambulance services has risen risen in recent years. A single trip can exceed $45,000 for an air ambulance service and $1,400 for a ground ambulance ride. Medical transportation and workers' comp can take many different forms. These include air ambulances, emergency and non-emergency ground ambulances, non-emergency transportation to and from medical appointments, down to mileage reimbursement for instances where injured workers can drive themselves and other ancillary transportation-related services. Recently, air ambulance services and their associated costs have garnered attention. The U.S. Congress the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, and several state governments and related stakeholders have explored issues surrounding the cost of air ambulance services. 
Several states, as well as the U.S. Congress, have introduced legislation aimed at addressing these concerns. In the work comp arena, much of the discussion has centered around a state's ability to regulate air ambulance reimbursement rates. The average payment per episode increased for both fixed-wing and rotary-wing episodes since 2013. The average base payment is higher for rotary-wing episodes compared with fixed-wing episodes. The average payment per episode for an air ambulance is, however, costly, exceeding $20,000 in recent years. Some states have fee schedules that encompass air ambulance services, which are intended to regulate work comp maximum allowable reimbursements. However, the Federal Airline Deregulation Act of 1978 expressly preempts state law related to price, route, or service of an air carrier. The question of which law governs fee schedule limitations on air ambulance reimbursements has led to legal challenges in several states. So far, state and federal courts have largely found that the this Deregulation Act preempts state laws and regulations limiting air ambulance reimbursements. So that is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Fols with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langaman. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.